Well, hello, I am Kyle Burkholder. I'm a pastor here at Covenant Church, and I'm just delighted that you're here with us. Uh, we exist to know Jesus and make him known, and even over the last uh, couple months, uh, I just want to celebrate you as our body, um, whether gathering here, uh, doing the work online. Um, we've had an incredible turnout of people that are making Jesus known, that are carrying out mission uh, throughout what has really just been a strange uh, season. And so a couple of weeks ago, we had Fam Jam here where we had uh, a couple hundred people that usually is five, six hundred people, all of our neighbors, but we still had a party and we invited our friends and we even socially distanced the food trucks. Did you notice this? Um, and so Allison and her team pulled off a great event that allowed us to invite people to uh, experience grace and goodness in a really uh, simple way. Well, last night we had our covenant students out at a corn maze and we had over 30 students get together and we had our leaders pile them into cars and uh, get them, throw them in a cord maze. We brought most of them home. Some are going to find their way out eventually this week. But it, it was this incredible moment where we saw those little hints of normalcy, but the, it, it's not even normalcy. It's those things we crave, that connection we crave. And so our mission is so much about connection. It's connecting people to Jesus and connecting Jesus to the rest of our lives and understanding how that works. And so we're seeing that in all these little ways. And so today I'm wearing a connection shirt. You may notice that and be jealous of my very good looking shirt. It's... Um, it's pretty simple. How can I help you? How can I help? And it's a mantra we want to be something that is normal around here, that uh, we are here to serve others. We exist to go out of these walls and serve others. And so our Connect team has these great looking shirts, <coughs> excuse me, these great looking shirts that Robert uh, got for them. And I said, I absolutely want to wear those because what I want to do is say uh, thank you to our Connect team. If you see someone wearing one of these shirts, I want you to thank them. If you see them, so just say thank you for serving. Um, because since we relaunched on uh, the 2nd of August, we've had people every single week greeting at doors. We've had people following up on new guests online right now. We have people that are online hosts that are there simply to be uh, the welcoming force that as people show up on the internet to our website, is the very first time to attend a service that they'll have somebody there that'll be a warm and welcoming spirit and uh, someone to pray with them, all those things. And so um, I just want to thank uh, you guys and then specifically, uh, keep connecting. Keep connecting people to Jesus. Keep, like if you're not connected to Jesus, if you're in here and you're like, you know what, that's sort of a strange thing for me still, keep nudging in and see what God wants to do in your life this year. I think this opportunity of this year is really making itself known to us that we have a chance to lean into something good and beautiful. And so keep doing that. Okay, so the mission is moving forward. Our sermon is moving forward. And uh, let's get into it. So what we're doing is walking with Jesus um, every single week, and it's been a lot of fun to just walk with Jesus. Last week, he told uh, the, the folks gathered around him that he was kind of the true and better Jonah, the salvation. He was the true and better Solomon, better wisdom. And uh, what he was essentially saying to them was, guys, I'm here if you want to find me. You don't have to go looking somewhere else. You don't have to go to old stories. You don't have to go look for new miracles. I'm here if you want me. And so he continues uh, with that vein today in a really interesting way in Luke chapter 11. I'm just going to read it. We'll put it on the screen for you as well. It says, no one lights a lamp and then hides it or puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where its light can be seen by all who enter the house. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. So when your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when it is unhealthy, your body is filled with darkness. Make sure that the light you think you have is not actually darkness. If you're filled with light, no dark corners, then your whole life will be radiant as though a floodlight were filling you with light. This is bringing forward a previous part of his teaching. 
He has just told them, I'm the new Jonah, I'm the new Solomon, I'm salvation, I'm wisdom. And, and he starts and uses this light metaphor that we, we think of, you know, hide it under a bushel. No. And he's saying, I am the light and I'm easily found. I'm not under a basket. I'm not hidden. I'm here if you want me. He starts with that concept. I'm here. I'm not hiding. If you want me, I'm here. And then he spins it on everybody listening to say, but what about the light in you? And so it's a, it's a really kind of clever little thing that Jesus does is he goes, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not hidden and I'm not going to be hidden. What about you? What about the light in you? Let's talk a little bit about light. Light is life and truth. Light is life and truth. First, it's, it's life. In our electrified world, we tend to forget that light equals life. I mean, think about this. We, uh, we, everything we do is electrified. Every time we want light, we flip the switch, we hit the button. Um, even our phones have flashlights. How many times a week do you find yourself using your phone flashlight? It didn't even used to be a thing, but now I have light anywhere I need light. I've been reading about a nuclear war, speaking of which. I've been reading a lot about nuclear war lately. I studied a little bit of it in college as a history student, and, and I've gotten back into it. A bunch of good books have come out about it, and you go, I don't want those book recommendations, but I'm happy to give them if you want them. Anyway, I've been reading about it, and what's so interesting is, is the existential threat of nuclear war to the human race. Like, we have thousands of nuclear weapons, and Russia has thousands of nuclear weapons, and China's got some, and, and Britain's got some, and Pakistan and India, and then North Korea. So people have these weapons. But there's an existential threat that uh, if a nuclear war breaks out, we're kind of all in big trouble. Uh, if you remember the Bay of Pigs, whether you lived through it, studied it in history, however you remember JFK and the Bay of Pigs, you can Google it if you uh, don't know what that is. Basically, we're on the brink of nuclear war uh, over something happening in Cuba. And that was kind of a Russian proxy, a Soviet proxy. And the Joint Chiefs of Staff, so official military numbers, said if we had gone to nuclear war over the Bay of Pigs, casualty count would have been 600 million. Because once you start, the thing just escalates. And you can't fire a nuclear weapon without them firing one back. And, and so that was like a, a conservative estimate because um, some of the architects of our nuclear war plans, which I've been reading, again, so much fun at my house, um, they would say that's low because honestly, if we had that kind of thing start happening, um, it's two and a half years before we're all gone. And I was like, what? I'm, and I keep reading. And they said, essentially, what happens in a nuclear war is all the soot and the smoke and the debris and a war of that scale that will all enter into the stratosphere. Atmosphere, the winds blow it away. When it enters the stratosphere, there's no wind. And so if you have soot and smoke and debris and all the things up in the stratosphere, what happens is it obscures the sun, less light, shorter growing season, less plants, no removal of carbon dioxide, no new oxygen, no growing season, no new food. How long does it take before the supermarket is empty? And if there are no new green beans and there are no new grains to make the, even the boxes of things in the middle aisles, the mac and cheese that we want to buy with the powder that goes, all the things, even the things that aren't fresh, you go, well, we got other stuff. We can survive for a bit while we figure it out. And they said, there, there's no light. There's no new food. There's no new base product. And, and the estimate is when two to three years, there would be a mass starvation event in the world. Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> light is life. In our digital age, we forget that light is the first domino of life, that everything we enjoy, everything we love, everything starts with light. If you go back to the front pages of your Bible, see where God starts when he creates. No light, no life. Second thing, light is truth. So light is life, but light is also truth. In darkness, we have some perception of where we are. We think we do anyway. If you're in your house, your apartment, and, and, 
all the lights are out and you wake up in the middle of the night, you kind of think you could figure out where you're going to go. You're going to avoid this thing here and you're going to miss that over there, but you'll bump into a few things. Mostly you'll figure it out. You have a perception. I always say if we did an experiment here, we could turn off all the lights and make it totally dark in here. And I lined everybody up on this wall over here. Do this at home. Pick a wall. And we had to walk across the church to the other wall. There are rows of chairs that aren't exactly in straight lines from one wall to the other. You'd have to find your way through it. If there's no light, there's not a single person in the room that wouldn't stumble over a chair. You take out all the light in your house, it's the same. You put one thing in a place that you don't usually have it, it's the same. Because light is truth. Only light gives us verifiable evidence of what's in front of us. Otherwise, we're just guessing on past experience the old thing with a kid who has a coat and a hat hanging on a hook on the wall. And at dusk, when the light's just right, when the light's low and, and the shadows have come in from the nightlight on the other wall, what is it? It's the boogeyman hanging. It's the, whoa. And they got to call mom and dad because there's something in the closet. There's something hanging out and you flip the lights on and it's the coat and the hat. Light is truth. Light exposes what's real. Jesus says this in Luke 8, he says, For all that is secret will eventually be brought into the open, and everything concealed will be brought to light and made known to all. So even Jesus equates light with truth, that when light shows up, the truth is revealed. Light shows what was hidden and secretive. And we're going to study this whole thing again. He's going to talk about this again in Luke 12. So in a few weeks, we're going to get back into this idea about things being brought into the open. And I'm I'm so excited. Jesus is going to do one of these clever things where we think he's saying one thing, and it's something else entirely. Where we are today is is essentially looking at the fact that humans are really good at hiding things. You ever think about this? Humans are really good at hiding things. It's one of the things we do best is hide stuff. Took me about 35 years in life to realize that there was a makeup product known as concealer. That's an actual thing? I was looking at my wife one day. I was like, what are you doing? She goes, I'm putting on my concealer. And I was like, what? What are we concealing? Like, what are we hiding? Oh, the blemish here, this there, you got to even this out. And I was like, what does that even mean? There's a product called concealer? And actually, you give credit to the makeup industry, which is usually, you know, they're, they're marketing smashed bugs with mostly marketing dollars, and they're, 99% of what they do is just marketing. But this is pretty good honesty, if you're honest about it. I mean, think about it. Concealer is really just saying, oh, that's, that's my hiding cream. I'm putting my hiding cream on because I have to hide some things, and then we'll go from there. We're really good at hiding things. We're good at hiding things we don't want others to see. Uh, most of your trash cans in your house have a lid. Hmm, mine goes in a drawer. Don't even know I have a trash can. We don't even make trash. We're really clean. Well, well yeah, we do. It's just in the drawer. I don't want people to see my trash. Public bathrooms. Are you glad that they have stalls and doors on public bathrooms? It's good to hide some things. We're getting good at this. There are cities that have translucent walls for public bathrooms now so that they, people can't do... Um, inappropriate things, drugs, whatever, in the, so you actually can kind of see shadows, and that's super creepy. I don't really want to go there. I'm kind of glad that that's hidden. I bet your bedroom windows have some sort of curtain or blinds, don't they? Behind every fast food restaurant, you've known this. At some point in your life, you've driven behind a fast food restaurant. You're in their drive through You're circling the building. They have a stinking dumpster full of scraps. Aren't we glad they hide that? How do they hide it? Every single one of them has that silly privacy fence they put up around it as if we don't know what's behind the fence by the ooze dripping out from under the thing and the smell as you drive by. You know exactly what's behind the fence, but we want to hide it. Nothing to see here. We're good at hiding things. You flip forward to the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve, one of the first things they learned how to do was they said that we heard God coming and so we hid. We hide. We hide. 
The human heart knows how to hide. The human heart knows how to seek shadows. And shadows are just areas of distraction. I want to argue that shadows are simply areas of distraction where human curiosity says, I wonder what's back there. Most of our bad habits don't start out as bad habits. They start out as as a curiosity. And we go a little deeper into the shadow and a little deeper into the shadow. And before we know it, we're totally in darkness. And how did I get here? I was just curious. But our curiosity leads us deeper in the shadow. And before we know it, we don't see much light anymore. God says the light eventually comes to every shadow. And the question Jesus poses here is, are we choosing to embrace light or shadow? Embrace light or shadow? Your eye is not a passive thing. Your eye is actively seeking as you go about the day. And Jesus would say, your eyes are revealing your true Savior. Your eyes are revealing your true hope. Your eyes are revealing where you look in times of trouble. And so where do you look for hope? Politics? Is it a vaccine? The mask makes me feel comfortable. Where do you look for courage? Is it a drink? Is it a friend? Is it an anonymity online? Where do you look for salvation? A raise or a retirement plan? Where do your eyes go for hope and security and salvation? Where do you look? David writes in Psalm 20 that that some, some boast of chariots, some of horses, but we boast of the name of the Lord our God. They'll collapse and fall, but we shall stand, rise and stand upright. King David and Israel are facing opposition, and it's this telling phrase, they trust in chariots and horses. He's calling on his people to lean on God and not on military might and power. John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, points out how natural it is for men to have courage and confidence when in possession of riches and power and military might. Instead, I've been reading about nuclear war, and one of the most recent things that's come up with a nuclear nation is North Korea. North Korea is the hermit kingdom. It's kind of a laughingstock in the world of uh, one of the poorest places. Um, I'm fascinated by it. I've read so many books of refugees who've made it out of North Korea, because the story to me is just wildly fascinating. It's a totally unique place. It's wildly poor, totally closed off, terrible dictator, but they got nuclear weapons. And so if it was anywhere else in the world that was this way, that was treating people this way, the human rights abuses, closed society, all these things, America, world's police, we'd go in and make a, we'd make a little change there and we'd overthrow this guy and we'd put in a new guy and we'd figure it out. We wouldn't let that happen. But the problem is they have nuclear weapons. They have, they got horses and chariots. And so we can't quite go in like we would go anywhere else because even if he's a little bit crazy, the dictator of North Korea has a a nuclear button and it reaches our shores. And so unless we want to put a million people at risk or 20 million people in Seoul, about 40 miles south of the demilitarized zone, unless we want to put millions of lives at risk, we can't really do anything with North Korea because they got horses and chariots. They got the power of the bomb. They have what Calvin would call in a personal sense, he'd he'd call it carnal confidence. They have carnal confidence. They They have power in and of themselves, and so they can resist light. When you turn to power or might or money or position as the source of your confidence, you do so at the expense of turning to God. The Bible is very clear. You cannot serve two masters. To illustrate this, my neighbor in San Antonio when we were living in Texas, we lived in a pretty nice neighborhood. We had lived in a really not nice neighborhood. And so we moved at one point. My, uh, my oldest was about to start kindergarten. So we moved into a good school district. And so it was a, you know, 
upper middle class neighborhood with a doctor down the street and everybody's kind of professional people and um, very suburban, very cookie cutter suburb, but pretty safe. And one day my neighbor who comes, uh, went, went to our church, he walked over and he had these, um, these giant screws in one hand and his power drill in the other hand. And he knocks on the door. He's like, I'm just going to be a minute. And I'm like, I don't really know what's happening here, but this is weird. And he goes, oh, well, there's been a lot of houses that are getting uh, invaded and, and burglarized and they just kick in the front door because the screw that holds your deadbolt in is this big. And so the deadbolt doesn't really matter if you can just kick in the door. And so what I did, and he tells me, I got these long screws. You can't kick in these screws. And so I put one in the door, Jim, and I put one into the door itself. And then your deadbolt actually works. And so I'm just going to be a minute. And I was like, all right. So he puts in these long screws, and he, he fixes it all up, and he closes the door. He's like, do you want to test it, see if it works? I'm like, I don't think I'm going to kick my door, but thanks. And, you know, little do either of us ever think about the fact that three feet to the left of the door is a piece of glass this thin that they would just have to, you know, hit with their elbow, and they'd be in the house. So it's not really anything, but it made us feel better. We got some carnal confidence out of the fact that not only do we have an alarm system, not only do we have a privacy fence, but now we have these really long screws in our door in our deadbolt. So we're a little bit better off. We had no security. There's nothing real happening there. It's all just carnal confidence. It was security based in something totally irrational, but it made me feel better. And I'm not saying don't lock your doors. Trust God, don't lock your doors. Leave your windows open. I didn't say that. Be smart. But the question, the bigger question is, where do you turn for security? Where do you ultimately turn for hope? Where do you ultimately turn to feel safe at night? Back to Psalms, uh, David writes in Psalm 77, when I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing, though. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night and then I thought to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty needs. Where did David turn in his hour of weakness? Where did David turn in his moment of insecurity? Where did David turn when he needed something to count on? He turned to the goodness of the Lord. He remembered the deeds once done. He considered the works and the deeds of the mighty God. See, we either remember God or we forget God. We kind of, I don't like false dichotomies where it's like it's either A or B. Usually I'm like it's C, it's all of the above, or it's none of the, I like that gray in the middle. But this is one of those you kind of have to choose. Do you rely on God ultimately or do you rely on self? Let's talk about North Korea. They have a national policy called Juche, J-U-C-H-E, Juche. It's called self-reliance. That's what it translates to. They have a national policy of self-reliance and it's not only a national policy. We want to produce our own food and our own security and our own, they, they want to be totally walled off but they have it individualized for each house and so each household is expected to practice Juche as well. So your household has to be totally self-reliant and yours is totally self-reliant. Why? Because then we can be who we want to be and we don't need the outside world. That works, except the natural extension of self-reliance is isolation. And there's never been a country more isolated than North Korea. They did it to themselves. They, they, they self-relianced themselves into isolation. That applies to us too. If you are reliant on self and self alone, if it's only what you can conquer, if it's only what you can do, if it's only what you can control, at the end of the day, you look up and you're isolated and you don't know why. Where's my friendships? Where's my community? Where's my security? Where's my hope? It's all on me. 
If a life is focused on creating self-reliance, whether that's financial or emotional or spiritual, the question becomes then where is the space for you to trust God? Calvin said it this way, he said, the saints, that's you, by the way, the saints must cast off everything which would hinder them from placing an exclusive trust in God. He doesn't say they're bad things. He says, but you have to cast off the things that hold you back from trusting Jesus as your salvation, of trusting God with your security, of trusting the Lord as your hope. See, pride says, I can do this. And humility says in Christ alone. Pride says, I can do this. Pride sends us into the shadows of self. Pride says, I can do this. And so we talk about these shadows and these, these alleyways that we go into, the darkness that, that creeps in, the boogeyman around the corner. Most of the shadows we have are actually self. It's pride. It's self-reliance. Because if I can get more, if I can try harder, if I can keep my life hidden as long as I need to, then maybe, just maybe, I'll be okay. I'll just, just give me a few more days to get that habit sorted out. Give me a few more days to get my life figured out. Give me a few more days. I can do this. There's no deeper, darker shadow than the shadow of self. I'll open the curtains of my life when it's good enough. Why do you have curtains or blinds on your house, in your apartment, in your bedroom? Why? At night, when it starts getting dark earlier around here, when it starts getting bright later, too, and the mornings are, are pretty dark, the, er, the evening earlier and earlier it starts getting dark. We live in a, a neighborhood with mostly ranch-style houses, and they usually have a really big glass window, big plate glass window right in the front. And you can drive down my street, and you can see what every last person in the neighborhood is doing. The light's inside the house. It's dark outside. I can see in. And so about 6.30, 7 o'clock, you start noticing that curtains start getting closed and blinds start being drawn. Why? It's weird to have people looking at you. My neighbor, their blinds only go two-thirds up the way of their windows. It's some sort of system where the top is still like uh, no blind, so it it's illuminates the house in a different way or something. I don't know. What it does for me, since I'm about two feet above him in elevation, is I can look from my big glass window into his big glass window and I can see exactly what he's watching for TV anytime. They like Jeopardy. They do like Jeopardy. And football. I know that for a fact. And if I had binoculars, I wouldn't even have to pay for YouTube TV or cable or whatever. I would just watch his. I can figure it out. Anytime I can see. He doesn't know I can see. If he watches this, I can, Andrew, I can see. Okay. We can choose to let the light in, but we can also choose to shut it out when we want to be private. We close the curtains of our life. The question is this. Would you live differently if there were no curtains on your house? Hmm. Uh, no? May, well, Huh. Would you live differently if your life was broadcast 24-7? If people could always see in, would you do anything different? I think you would. When I took uh, this role as pastor here years ago, one of the first things I did in our offices, which have since moved, but we brought the doors with us, I took the old doors, which were solid doors, and I, I asked that they be replaced with glass doors. I wanted transparency. I've read too many stories. I've seen too many articles. I've, I've had too many friends People in ministry, when they got behind closed doors, weren't who they said they were. Were doing stuff they shouldn't have been doing. And the fallout was crushing. I said, not, not us. We will not be able to hide behind closed doors. We will not have a counseling appointment that goes on behind a closed door. There will be glass there and you can see it. And if you ever want to know what I'm doing, you can walk out in the foyer and you can look through the big window and you can see directly to my desk. wonder what he's doing. Come and see. Why? Because transparency matters. Because I know... That in the depths of my soul, I am prone to shadows like you are. 
So I don't have a curtain to close. Accountability is straight out in front of me. See, Jesus is saying something slightly different, but it's sort of the same idea. Jesus is saying, if you fix your eyes on the light, you'll be filled with it. And then the light will be inside of you, and then you'll have no shadows and nothing to hide, and and you can live without curtains if you have nothing to hide. More than that, you illuminate the neighborhood. When you're lit up, when you drive my street at night, the houses that have their curtains open, they actually illuminate the street from the inside out. Don't think of it that way. But when the house is lit up and the night is dark, the house lights the night, not the other way around. The author of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Paul says, live as children of light. How do we do this? It's kind of a formula. Fix your eyes on Jesus and then live it out is what the formula is that the Bible sort of sets out for us. Fix your eyes on Jesus and then live it out. Example would be this. If you want to be the biggest Buckeyes football fan, it's, it's your, that's what I want to be. I want to be the biggest fan there is. I want to radiate Ohio State football everywhere I go. What would you do? You'd fix your eyes on football stuff, wouldn't you? You would watch all the games. You would watch all the highlights. You would probably tape the game and watch it back later to get a better understanding. You would read all the articles. You would listen to the podcast. You would know everything there is. You would fix your eyes on Buckeye football, and you would just take that in all day, every day. And then how would you live it out? You'd get that license plate. One Buckeye fan, but there's like a three instead of an E, but we get it because our brains, you know. So you'd have the cool license plate that told everybody who you were. You'd wear your hoodie every day. If you have to wear a tie to work, you would just get a Buckeye tie. Everybody got to know, here's what I'm about. Face paint, lots of face paint. Tuesday face paint at the office just for fun. Going into class, why'd your face painted? I'm a Buckeye, what are you going to do about it? That would be weird. But would you be radiating what you intended to radiate? Would people understand who you are? Yes, wow, okay, this is weird. This guy's a crazy person. But I get it. Want to radiate Jesus? You want to radiate truth and grace and love, hope to people? Do you want to feel closely connected to God and consistently feel his presence? Fix your eyes and then live it out. Fix your eyes on Jesus and then live it out. Fix your eyes on his truth. Sit in his word Fix your eyes on it and then live it out. Face paint for Jesus. First person to show up in Jesus face paint in church gets a free shirt. Okay, done. If you're online, take a picture of yourself in face paint. Don't use any of those Snapchat filters. I don't know how that works. I don't know what face paint for Jesus would look like. It'd be like the fish maybe or something. I'm not sure. How do you live it out? It's love your neighbor. It's grace for your enemy. It's how do you live it out? Fix my eyes and live it out. The writer of Hebrews is using a running metaphor. Run the race. Fix your eyes. So so what does he mean? He means look at the end of the race. Keep the end of the race in mind so when you're starting the race, you know what the end is and then you can pace yourself. When I write a sermon or a book or whatever, when I write something, I write with the end first. I know where this is going. When I sat down for this sermon, I knew what the end was. And then I worked backwards to make sure we got there. Anything I write, I'm writing it with the end in mind. A novelist doesn't sit down and go, ah, I'll just start writing and see where it goes. They outline it. They know where the end is, and then they build the story to get to the desired outcome. How do I want the reader to feel? What do I want them to experience at the ending? How does this work? A sports team starts the year with a goal in mind and then works towards it. Your favorite television show has a person called a showrunner who has a literal binder full of the entire show already planned out. And so they make sure that they get to the end that they have designed already. So when the pilot episode comes on TV, when the pilot episode finally hits the streaming service, guess what? They already know what season four and the end 
finale looks like. They've got it. These are silly things, but what about your life? Here's my suggestion for how we do this today. How do I live out the light better? Start with the ending. That's our suggestion today. Start with the ending. Live today with the end in mind. So if you told me that you knew what you wanted today to be like, when your head hits the pillow, here's what I want to feel, here's what I want to think, and here's what I want to have accomplished. If you say, I know what it is, when my head hits the pillow, here's what I want to have done. Guess what? You're a lot more likely to actually do that. As opposed to waking up and going, let's see what today's about. And then your head hits the pillow and you go, whoa, what was today? Doesn't mean it was bad, but was it intentional? You can't get to a desired ending if you don't know what the ending is. You have to start with the ending and then build backwards. Expand that. Wake up tomorrow aware that you will have a last day on earth. You will leave a legacy of the life you lived. Guess what? You're a lot less likely to chase shadows if you know that there is an account given of your life. You know that there's a legacy that you leave your family and friends. To know that there is a last day coming, it gives you a different urgency about the day that you're in. With the end in mind, you embrace light anew. With our eyes fixed on the promises of eternity, we are not so distracted by the temptations of today. When our eyes are fixed on bigger, better things, the little shadows don't bother us anymore. We don't want that. I got got my eyes fixed on something better. With our eyes on Jesus, we walk away from that approval junkie thing in us. We want the world to think we're okay. We're okay walking away from the latest craze trend. We can ignore the hysteria of the moment. Whatever the news says I'm supposed to really have an opinion about, I don't really need to have an opinion about that because there'll be something new tomorrow. I got my eyes fixed on something greater. We can leave the curiosity of the shadows behind. When we start with the ending, it changes the way we live the presence. Think about it this way. When you fix your eyes on graduation, the test brings its own motivation because this is about graduating. When you fix your eyes on your 50th wedding anniversary, you pursue your spouse in a different way, in a profound and necessary way, because we're going to get to 50 years. It's going to happen today and tomorrow and every day. When you fix your eyes on eternity, you wake up determined to live the life that you have on earth as it is in heaven. Because there's something greater at stake. When you fix your eyes on Jesus, you overcome this reality that life is going to fade away and instead you live in the reality that life with him never does. And you approach the world with a different heart. Friends, we've been given the story. We've actually been given the end of the story. You can look forward, it's all in there. We've been given the end of the story and invited then to live in it, to live as children of light and remember God in all things. To chase more of Jesus every day. And it's become a little bit cliche, so, so roll your eyes if you must. But life is just the hyphen between your birth and your death years. Maybe you've heard that before. Life is just the hyphen between your birth and your death. Every, every single one of us at one point, whether it's an internet obituary or a stone in some cemetery, is going to have our name with a birth year and a death year with a hyphen separating the two. You didn't choose your name. You don't choose the year you were born, and you certainly can't choose the year you die. The only thing you choose on that last day, the only thing you've chosen is the hyphen in the middle. So life is all about what you do with the hyphen. Life is all about what do you do between the first day and the last day, and you don't know that tomorrow isn't the last day, and so what are you doing today? 
Start with the ending. Live out the hyphen. Go somewhere with me, if you will. It's going to take a little bit of imagination, but maybe not as much as we'd like it to. Here in the room online, if you would, um, if you would just close your eyes. We're going to leave this room in our mind's eye and go to a different room. That room has sort of this electric hum, beeping of a heart monitor, the occasional pressure release of, of the drip of the IV. You hear it. Psh. It's got a little bit of that antiseptic smell. You know where you are. You're in a hospital room, a hospice room. In your mind's eye, you can see your family is gathered around you. Maybe a good friend or two. Maybe if you're lucky, you have kids or grandkids. People you love are gathered around you. The beeping continues. It seems to be fading, but, but you know where you are. You're slipping in and out of consciousness. You, you kind of can't really say much. You open your eyes for a brief moment, but they feel heavy and you close them again. The one thing you do for sure is you, you do hear it all. You hear everything happening in the room around you. That beeping becomes more crisp and more rhythmic. And the voices in the room and the faces they bring up in your mind, those, those voices become clear. They're talking about you. Those people who love you more than anyone else, those people who flew in, drove in, made their way in because they knew this might be their last chance to see you, those people are talking about you in your presence, in your room. There's a sniffle, a sob, maybe a couple of quiet laughs or two as they begin to recount the stories of your life. They begin to recount the sweet remembrances of your days. These are the people who love you. What do they speak of? What are the stories that your loved ones are telling of you around your bedside? One by one, then, so often happens, they, they lean in. The doctor comes in and says, it, this might be a good time to say goodbye. And the people who love you most then take a deep breath and with tears welling up in their eyes, they lean in. They get close to your ear, hoping you're still listening. They tell you that you're loved. They thank you for your life, tell you that you're safe. Some brave soul says, hey, it's okay to let go. And they say so, and you begin to feel that room fading away. And as those voices fall into the distance, another voice becomes audible. You start hearing this other voice, and that voice says, in the midst of the shadows, you carried the light well. You lived a radiant life. Come into the eternal light with me. That voice becomes clear as you know that you're no longer in that hospital room. And then you hear what you've been waiting to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. The question for today is what is the life that we need to lead if that is the ending that we start with today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your light is undeniable. Your truth and your beauty sort of blows us away, so much so that we turn away from it. It's just too much sometimes. 
And Father, you've been faithful to give us the ending of the story to remind us that victory is already ours. And so, as you invite us to live in victory, Father, we would confess that too often we live in shadows, we live in the pride of self. And our desire, Lord, is to really start with that ending in mind again, that if today is the first day we start with the ending, that God, you would give us the courage and the endurance to run that race well, to fix our eyes on you and to live out the life you've called us to. Lord, remind us that there is a day coming when we will meet you face to face where you will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, let us start every day with that day in mind so we might work backwards to build that life and that legacy of love and grace and joy for all to see. Lord, may the hope of our eternity that starts now be the hope that takes us through each and every day. Father, call us to something higher, to something deeper. Give us the courage to walk that path. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.